Now, now let me give you a heads up this morning. Uh, I, I'm going to be referencing a lot of Scripture, a lot of Scripture. Somebody told me you'd be crazy to, to do that much, and I said, that's okay, our people are crazy. They can handle it, <laughs> and I believe you can handle it. But uh, the, this, the purpose of that is that I, I want to let Scripture tell the story today, and I want us to, to have as complete a picture as possible of all that happened to our Lord Jesus in just that very brief period of nine to ten hours prior to his crucifixion. Well, those hours were incredibly chaotic. And again, that chaos continued until Jesus breathed his last breath upon the cross on Friday afternoon. We're going to see many try to take his life from him amidst that chaos. But we're also going to see the astonishing majesty of a Savior who is in complete control and who freely offers his life up for us. Well, the Jewish people in the time of Jesus actually prided themselves for what a good system of justice that they had. And they, in terms of trials, they had certain protocols that they were supposed to follow, such as no trial should take place between 6 p.m. at night and 6 a.m. the next morning. No trial should take place in secret. <laughs> and yet, our Lord Jesus, it was one illegal trial after another, as the first three of these trials all take place during the night and all play, take place secretly hidden from the public. Well, the chaos began in the Garden of Gethsemane. As we saw last week, Jesus and the disciples left the upper room to go into the garden to pray. Or I should be quick to say, Jesus prayed, and you recall that the disciples slept. Until that moment came when Jesus announced the arrival of his betrayer. John 18, beginning in verse 3, we read that the leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived in the olive grove. It could have been as many as five to 600 soldiers. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And as Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. I mean, this must have looked like cascading dominoes. Again, friends, they did not take Jesus' life from him. Verse 12, so the soldiers, their commanding officer and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. Now, it was probably around midnight or so when John says in verse 13 that they first took him to Annas. And the temple <clears throat> first took him to Annas, since he was the, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. This is the very first Jewish trial. So who was Annas? Well, Annas had been, formerly been a high priest, in, in fact, for about 10 years, until he became one of the, the most powerful individuals in the city of Jerusalem, most powerful and one of the most wealthy, in fact, so powerful that the Roman government thought he was too powerful. And so they decided to limit the terms that a, a high priest could serve, to, and so they, they forced Annas to give that up. But he had such continued wealth and influence that he was able to keep the high priesthood in the family, and so the next person who was installed was his son-in-law, Caiaphas. Well, one of the ways that Annas had gained so much wealth was through the scam that he had set up in the temple. 
Now, when the people came to sacrifice animals most of the time, they ended up having to buy them from the money changers so they could have officially approved sacrificial animals. And those money changers charged them more than 20 times the value of what the animals was worth. The money changers, the money changers that Jesus had driven out of the temple earlier that week. <clears throat> That's probably why Annas wanted to see Jesus first. I mean, who was this guy that tried to take down his business, right? John 18, verse 19, inside the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching them. Jesus replied, everyone knows what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where the people gather. He'd been teaching all that week in the temple. I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? As those who heard, ask those who heard me, they know what I said. Well, that struck such a nerve that we read next in verse 22, then one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way to answer the high priest, he demanded? Jesus replied, if I have said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? See, Jesus is making a strong point of law here. According to the Jewish law, this kind of direct questioning was not supposed to take place out of concern for that a prisoner might say something to incriminate himself. That, that sounds rather familiar, right? And then there were witnesses that were supposed to be called, and at least two of them needed to fully and completely agree with one another. So they are breaking at least two of the laws right here. So Annas gets nothing from him. Verse 24, then Annas bound Jesus and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Well, the fact that a plot against Jesus had been established is very, very obvious when he gets to Caiaphas' house. Because we read, Mark tells us in chapter 14, inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. In other words, they're trying to drum up the evidence. But they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke against him, but they, could, they contradicted each other. Finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. Oh, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another made without human hands. Now, that's, if you go back and look at what Jesus said, that's not exactly what he said. But even then, they didn't get their story straight, Mark tells us. I mean, they're rolling one false witness after the other, but it's done in such a hurry that Mark tells us again, even they cannot get their story straight. Verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent and made no reply. I mean, nothing reasonable had been said for Jesus to reply to, right? Then the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now, Jesus speaks. In fact, throughout his trials, we will always see him speak to truth. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus is seriously getting in Caiaphas' face here, if you will. He's saying, Caiaphas, indeed, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. And this is not the last time you're going to see me. You're going to see me coming on the clouds of heaven. 
You're going to see me coming back to judge both the living and the dead. You're going to see me coming back at the right hand of the Father because I am God, he's saying. Powerful declaration of truth. But it is also exactly what they wanted to hear. Verse 63, then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror. I mean, it's all very dramatic, right? To show his horror and said, why do we need other witnesses? Because they don't have any others, basically, at this point. You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they all cried. He deserves to die. I think of the, the tragic irony here. I mean, the, the Jewish people have been waiting for, desperately waiting for hundreds of years for a Messiah, and he's standing right in front of them. And he even says, I am. But they say, no, you're not. Not the Messiah we want. And you deserve to die for trying to make us believe that we should. Well, now that they think they've gotten all the evidence they need, it just becomes a, a chaotic frenzy. Then some of them began to spit at him. They blindfolded him and beat him with their fist. Prophesy to us, they jeered. No, tell us who hit you, Jesus. And the guards slapped him as they took him away. You see, Jesus' suffering began long before they ever nailed him to the cross. Long before. Well, Jewish law required there be a 24-hour waiting period between conviction and sentencing. The idea was for the judges to go home and take 24 hours, really, to, 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 they were prescribed to, to fast and pray during that period of time to, to bring themselves before God to affirm the decision that they had made. But the religious leaders were in way too big of a hurry to do that. They couldn't afford to wait. So Mark tells us next in chapter 15, verse 1, Very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. Now, what was the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin was kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court, except there weren't just nine. There were 70 of them. All elders made up from among the people. They included chief priests, scribes, and over them all was the high priest. So this is the third of the Jewish trials. It was really more of a formality to get them all to sign off on what they'd done and to affirm their next steps. But again, this all had to happen quickly in order to avoid as much of the public as possible because they didn't want Jesus' followers that still remained to get wind of this and try to raise a stink about it. So they wanted to get him into the hands of the Roman government as quickly as possible. So that's where they take him now. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So now the civil trials begin. Pilate had been appointed by the Roman emperor Tiberius to reign over, to be the governor over Judea. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, ancient historian Josephus, makes it very, very clear that the people despise, despise Pilate. And because of his complete disrespect for their faith, their practices, Pilate had been a failure from the very beginning. In fact, Tiberius, on a couple of different occasions, had come very close to just recalling him back to Rome. But Pilate had great ambition, great ambition. I mean, he desperately wanted to hang on to this position of power. And that driving desire of Pilate would become the ultimate trump card held by the Jewish religious leaders. 
chapter 18 of John, verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. <laughs> I mean, this is incredible hypocrisy. I mean, they're, they're, the Jewish law prescribed that, and, and it was one of their man-made laws. This is not one you'll find in, in, in the Bible, in Scripture. This is one of their man-made laws that the Jewish leaders added on to God's laws. And this is one of the laws that said if you entered into the house of a Gentile, you would be defiled at the point that you would have to go through a seven-day rite of cleansing, which in the case of these guys would hinder them, would keep them from being able to observe the Passover. But they had already broken probably at least as many as 10 different laws already at this point. But they're going to choose to observe this one, probably just to get under the skin of Pilate even more. It irked him to have to come out, no doubt. Verse 29, so Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Well, they knew that a charge of religious blasphemy was not any big deal to the Romans because the Romans thought there were gods around everywhere. And so they initially give him this very evasive answer. Notice verse 30, if he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. See, the Roman government at this time in Jewish history did not allow the Jews to carry out the death penalty. Only Rome could do that. So verse 32, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Don't brush right over that. Don't miss that. You see, according to Jewish law, Jesus would have been thrown down and stoned to death. But according to Roman law, they executed people by what? Crucifixion. Jesus predicted in John 12, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Well, that desire expressed by the Jewish leaders to kill Jesus definitely got Pilate's attention at this point. Verse 33 of John 18, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? I mean, Jesus essentially here is inviting Pilate to faith, the thought of which did not settle well with Pilate. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. See, Jesus is saying that his kingdom is not a kingdom that's going to be ushered in violently at the point of a sword. You remember when Jesus talked to the Pharisee named Nicodemus way back in John chapter 3. He said, you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. Entrance into God's kingdom, into Jesus' kingdom, requires the spiritual miracle of rebirth. Something Pilate knows absolutely nothing about. 
a kingdom he has no idea about. And then he, he says then to Jesus, oh, you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. But in fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. It's hard to know exactly what Pilate meant when he asked that question. (laughs) But you can't get any more contemporary than that, can you? What is truth? In our culture today, and I know I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, truth is a moving target. I mean, it is such an interesting time. People are, are essentially desperate for the truth, but they would never admit it. I mean, like the Jewish leaders in Pilate, they refuse to believe it when you present the truth to them. It's a demonic deception. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of truth. He came into this world to testify to the truth, he said. That is the the truth about God, the truth about who he is, his love, his justice, his grace, his forgiveness, his holiness. And then also to testify to the truth about human beings and our need for the good news of God's love and grace and forgiveness and to his spiritual kingdom that can come on earth and also in eternity beyond. Jesus said, Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. They truly listen. That is, they they not only hear with their ears, but they hear with an intent in their heart to obey him, to live according to his truth, because they've aligned themselves to what really is true. Pilate is standing face to face with the one who is truth incarnate, but he is not hearing. He is not hearing. Verse 38 of John 18. With this he, that is Pilate, went out again to the Jews to gather and to, to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. Now Luke's gospel tells us at this point, chapter 23, but they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus then was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. All the governmental leaders in the region came to Jerusalem for the Passover. Well, this is Herod Antipas, who was essentially the the governor of the region of Galilee. And so what Pilate is trying to do is to avoid Jesus at this point. I'm just going to let Herod handle this, which is exactly what many people try to do with Jesus, isn't it? Just avoid him? You can only do that for so long, though, right? As we learned as a part of this this study that that we uh, um, just engaged in during our 40 days, the first question that that God is going to ask you when you leave this earth is what? What did you do with my son, Jesus? But at that point, you won't have any opportunity to defer to anybody else. You can't avoid him. No one can deal with Jesus for you at that point. 
But Pilate tried his best. And boy, old Herod, Herod Antipas, I mean, he was excited to, to get to meet Jesus face to face. He'd heard a lot about Jesus, heard about his miracles. In fact, what he was hoping for was that Jesus would put on a little sideshow for him, do, do a little magic for him, do a miracle for him. But Jesus didn't utter a word to Herod. He was not going to speak to this man who had killed his cousin, John the Baptist. So Herod got frustrated, so he and his soldiers just mocked Jesus. They dressed him up in a fancy robe and sent him back to Pilate. So now, what is Pilate going to do with Jesus? He tries compromise. John 18, verse 39, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. In other words, they're asking for a terrorist instead of for Jesus. So Pilate tries another compromise. John 19, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Flogging was brutal. Instruments of torture were used that, that literally ripped a man's flesh from his body. Trained professionals could take a man to the very edge of death and had a bucket of salt water sitting there, and if, if, the, if the victim passed out, they'd take the bucket of water and throw it on his open wounds to, to wake him up. Then after the flogging, we read verse 2, that the, <clears throat> the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. The Old Testament book of Isaiah prophesies, chapter 53, verse 5, He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, bloodied and beaten, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Pilate's thinking, surely, when they see how, how terribly Jesus has been punished, that they'll have some kind of sympathy and, and, and be okay with letting him go at that point, that the very sight of him would be enough. But as we'll see in, in a moment, even that attempt at compromise did not work. Let me pause here and ask you for a moment. Is there any way in which you are compromising with Jesus? Are you by chance telling Jesus that you believe in him intellectually, you believe in him with your mind, but you're refusing to let him have your heart. Just an intellectual assent, thinking that's, that's, that's enough, I'll compromise, I'll go that far. But friends, that is not saving faith. Saving faith is when you give Jesus not just your mind, but also your heart. A saving faith and trust. Or perhaps you're trying to live with one foot in the faith and, and one foot in the world, and you've been straddling that fence for a long time. 
Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Plain and simple. Well, Pilate's compromise failed, and we read next, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. The Pilate answered, will you take him and crucify him? As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And John tells us when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. I mean, he was like many Romans at the time, superstitious, apparently concerned that he he may have just punished the son of some Roman god. Verse 9, and he went back inside the palace. Where, Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. So from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. There's the trump card. There's the trump card. Pilate, if you do this, you're going to get in trouble with Caesar. You may even lose your job over this, Pilate. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Whoa. Whoa. To hear those words out of the mouths of the chief priest must have taken Pilate's breath away. To hear such a declaration from a people who had always so fiercely declared that they had no king but God. At that point, Matthew's gospel tells us that Pilate chooses to be expedient. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. What a cop-out, huh? Are you acting in any way with expediency in your relationship with Christ? Or maybe you're finding it more convenient in your life to not do what you know in your heart of hearts is the right thing to do. John 19, verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull which, is, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, 
And there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. You know, sometimes you'll hear the debate within religious circles about, over the question, who, who really killed Jesus? Who really killed him? From a legal perspective, as we've just seen, it's clear that it was a group of religious leaders who plotted and pushed, and it was Pilate and the Romans who allowed it and carried it out. But from a spiritual perspective, in one sense, nobody did. Nobody. Again, Jesus voluntarily chose to offer up his life for us. But in another sense, the answer is, all of us killed Jesus. We who are sinners, which is all of us, are culpable for the death of Jesus Christ. First Peter 3.18, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned. But he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit, which is what Easter is all about. So in light of all that Jesus Christ has done for you, if you chose today to stop avoiding him, to quit compromising, to cease your expediency? What would be your next step to take in your walk with him? What would be your next step? Would it be to recognize that, I, you know, I, I've only gone to the point with Christ of, of, of intellectually saying, yes, I believe, but I have never received him into my heart. I've never expressed my faith and my trust in him. Would you let this day be the day where you surrender fully to him? Maybe you've made that decision, but you just simply never publicly shared that. Would you let this be that day? Maybe you need to declare your allegiance to Christ by getting baptized. You've never followed through in obedience to his command to be baptized. Maybe you need to repent of some sin that you've been clinging to that only he has the power to free you from. What needs to be your next step? As his spirit reveals that to you just now, are you willing to take that step? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we marvel at the majesty of who you are. 
and we marvel at all you did for us, all you went through for us. Lord, in light of such a great sacrifice, such a courageous sacrifice, may we have the courage today to take the step that you are telling us in our heart of hearts that we we need to take. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.